Let's turn to Exodus 20. Exodus 20. And we're now on the last of the Ten Commandments. This is number 10. You shall not covet. The last one. An actual fact, I think on the PowerPoints, we've actually got the two verses that I wanted to read. So we'll look at some scriptures later. But if you've turned to Exodus 20, that's a good thing. Because we've been working through the Ten Commandments. We've been working through uh, from uh, over ten weeks, not surprisingly, from verse 1 now to verse 17. Let's read verse 17, first of all. The last one. You shall not cover your neighbour's house. You shall not cover your neighbour's wife, or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbour. Now that's the version in Exodus 20. There is also a version, if the Ten Commandments, in Deuteronomy, and I've asked uh, that to be on the, o- on the overhead thing, because it is slightly different and it helps us to understand the word cover, actually. So, Deuteronomy 5:21. there it is, let's read that. You shall not cover your neighbour's wife, you shall not set your desire on your neighbour's house or land, his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbour. Now, you might uh, feel that this wording is even a bit quaint, you know, perhaps not too many of you are looking out for oxes and donkeys at the moment, but... It is actually a vital part of the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to overstate, restate too much what I've said ten times about their usefulness as a demonstration of the Maker's instructions. We'll have to move on quickly today. But this one is going to, as we look at it this morning, help us to understand how the Ten Commandments drive us to Christ. And this one particularly will help us in that way. Because this last one of the Ten Commandments is in some ways the most mysterious of them all. Because it doesn't seem to have that legal black and white element that the others have. It's pretty easy to tell if someone is stealing, or maybe making an idol, or murdering someone, or committing adultery. They're very black and white, they're very obvious. There's a sort of, you you know whether you've broken them or not, and probably before long others can find out as well. But this one, the Tenth Commandment, is more about desire, as the the Deuteronomy passage says. It's about something you desire. It's about a longing in your heart. So what is God saying? Now that's what I want to start by asking that question. What is God saying? We're going to look at just two very simple questions. But the first one is, what is God saying in this commandment? And then I'll tell you in anticipation. I'm just going to go on and the second one will be, what is the commandment doing here at all? in this list of ten fundamentals. But let's, first of all, just try and understand what God is saying. Coveting. Coveting is this. I've more or less got this from the dictionary. An eager, restless desire to possess something we have not got, even if it happens to belong to someone else. Coveting is an eager, restless desire to possess something you haven't got, even if it belongs to someone else. And actually, it is a powerful force in the human heart. Coveting is something that I think we're all, all of us, without exception, prone to in our natural state. And that's already a hint as to perhaps what God's saying. Let's explore it a bit. From a biblical point of view, coveting is really a focus or a fruit of probably two or three 
sinful roots that are in the human heart. Two or three negative roots. And I just want to highlight those. The first one is what we call materialism. Now, that isn't a word you find in the Bible, but the Bible is very aware of what materialism is. Let me just remind you of what it is. Materialism is the conviction that this life is all there is. That what you see and feel and what you have is all there is to life. And that is it. And you need the mo- to make the most of what you can get out of life now and get the most you can for yourself to use now because this is all it's about. Now that may seem quite a modern idea. Of course it's not. It is as old as mankind themselves. But Jesus highlighted the problems with materialism in a very powerful parable in Luke 12, which I shall read to you. You're welcome to turn to it as well. It's not going to be on the PowerPoint, only the reference. Luke 12 and verses 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Just listen to the story or read it because it's a very appropriate one. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then Jesus said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Listen to this. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That is a very contemporary challenge from Jesus. A man's or woman's life, a person's life, does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. People's possessions are not what their lives are about. They're not the be-all and end-all. They don't really tell you much about them at all, or not the really important things. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool." This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. And that's the other punchline, if you like, of this passage. People who store things up for themselves but are not rich towards God. And that is a vital part of understanding the problem of materialism which itself can generate and fuel coveting. Because when we look at this guy in this parable, the rich fool, as the Bible calls him, actually most of us would not say he was a fool. We'd say this is wisdom. The world around us would say this is a wise man. He's going to make bigger barns, he's going to store up as much as he can for himself so that he can have an easy retirement, eat, drink and be merry and enjoy himself and get the most out of life. And he's actually covering himself for the future and it's a very sensible thing to do to do now we'd recommend it indeed our culture would say as i say it's extremely wise behavior but god says that this guy made three major mistakes he thought that that wisdom was really wisdom when it was folly it was actually foolish to give all your focus to this world and to, to accumulating as much as you could because you thought that was the best way to live and to be. And that was folly. Another mistake he made was to think that his body and again his material possessions were all there were to his life. 
his soul was actually much more important than his body. And that's true of everyone in this room and everyone around us in the world. We have souls, we have spirits, we are not just physical material entities. And actually, our inner life, our spirit, our soul, these are the things that are really important. This man never thought about it. And the third mistake he made was to think that now, and experiencing and enjoying things now, today, was more important than thinking about eternity. He lived for now. But actually, his now was extremely short. That night, God required his soul of him. And that can be true for any of us. And even for those of us who might live to a ripe old age, it's still relatively short against the eons of eternity. And God says, the wise person prepares for eternity, not just for now. They do not just live for now. They are not materialists. Materialism gets you nowhere. It's in the end self-destroying and folly. And it is often materialism that so fuels coveting. I want more. I want what other people have got. Another root of coveting is discontent. And this is exposed in the Bible again and again. It is actually sinful, I think is the right word, to have a discontented spirit. To constantly be grumbling and complaining about what you've got and critical of what others have got and jealous of what they've got. That is not a healthy way to be. And the Bible is very clear in a number of places about that. The problem with it is that we think, again, that things are going to bring us contentment. And our contentment is going to come and our happiness is going to come from having more things. But actually, that is really and truly not so. I know it's very hard to say it, but it is truly not so. And over the years, I've learned that in my own life, and I've also watched it happen again and again, where people who've got very little are actually very content. And people who've got a lot are very discontent. And it just is a fact of life. And you only have to look at the lives of many rich sort of celebrities to get an idea that money and fame are not what bring contentment. I mean, you know, mine's very much at this point of Princess Diana, because... On Friday, there was the 10-year anniversary of her death, and it was all over our newspapers in our news. I mean, whatever your views on her uh, as an individual, and obviously we're not ones to be able to judge her. She seemed very good in many ways and not so good in others. She had a really very unhappy life, actually. I mean, she'd had everything people would say you want. I mean, she'd fame utterly to the... more. I mean, what they call her, a global icon. And she... I mean, money couldn't have been a problem or having anything you wanted to go to any sort of place you wanted to go, or to have any dress you wanted to wear. But actually, there's something terribly sad about Princess Diana's life, I feel. Just about not only her marriage situation and the sadness those two couldn't sort it out, if you like, and, but then how she reacted possibly after that, out of her bitterness and hurt, and possibly her own relationships with other people. And you listen to the story, most of which is pretty much public knowledge these days. You know, it's actually very sad. I wouldn't want to swap my life, for example, without being rude, for hers, remotely. Though I must probably have a fraction of her resources and an infinitesimal amount of her glamour and fame. And I, 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 I mean, it's just like you think, I would not want to be you. I really wouldn't. And, and you just, I tell you, contentment, these people are not content often 
when you read about people who've got lots of money, I know there was a chap in Hastings who, when we were there, who won at that time the biggest lottery win. It was £22 million. And the two guys won it in the early days of the lottery. And he, everything, he was, he was a, not a very nice bloke, as I knew from people who knew him. And he didn't get any better with his money. And he made more enemies and more enemies. He tried to do this, he tried to do that, he tried to buy the football club, he tried to do this, he tried to put other people out of business by expanding his own business. And he was miserable, everybody else was miserable. And he actually said at one time he wished he'd never won the money. I mean, contentment doesn't come with getting 11 million quid. You might think it does, but it doesn't, which is what he got. The Bible says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Perhaps you could put that one up, thank you, 1 Timothy 6. And actually, that simple, profound statement is very important. It is the greatest treasure of all, godliness with contentment. And the Bible, in the similar chapter, that chapter 6 of Timothy, I've got a couple of other scriptures, has some very perceptive things to say. Command, verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world. By the way, that probably applies to every single one of us in this room. However, you don't think you're rich, on a world scale you are. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who provides, richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God doesn't want you not to enjoy what you have. God provides it for your enjoyment. But we must not put our hope in things or possessions or money. We put our hope in God. And a discontent comes from putting your hope in possessions and having more. I haven't put this on the screen, but Philippians 4, Paul explains how he trusts God. And that's given him a contentment, whether he's got a lot of things or a few things. But what is in 1 Timothy is a challenge in verse 9, which is the next one on the screen. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. That is so true. And that's the heart of what God's saying behind the the, the whole thing of coveting. If you're just driven by wanting to get rich, whether you're poor or rich, both can be like this, it drives you often or leads you into many foolish and harmful desires that bring ruin and destruction. The answer is that we are not to be coveting. Now, we've got to talk about that before we finish this morning. Because coveting is in, in itself is an expression of discontent. We have got to learn, brothers and sisters, God wants us to be thankful people. People who are, in a sense, content with the understanding that everything they have comes from God. Everything you have comes from God. You deserve none of it. You brought nothing into this world and you can take nothing out of it. That also is from 1 Timothy 6. You brought nothing in and you can take nothing out. Everything you have is lent you by God. And we need to be grateful for whatever we've got. Now you might say, well, I've got needs to be met. Well, God wants to meet those needs. But we don't come out of that a sort of covetous spirit. We come out of a contentment with what we have got. An old song, Count Your Blessings Every Day, has got wisdom in it. That if you do count the blessings, if you do understand that by the grace of God you are what you are, that you brought nothing into the world, you take nothing out, what we've received is not what we deserve, then when you stand on that ground, you are able to handle the ups and downs of life with an even temper. Godliness with contentment is great gain. There's a third root of uh, coveting and it's plain old selfishness. 
Covetousness is actually the height of selfishness. It's self-interest about everything. You look at another person's possessions, another person's wife, another person's husband, another person's job, whatever it is, and you think, I'd like that for myself. My self-interest is what drives me along. But Jesus said we are to live completely differently. In Acts 20, in verse 35, Paul quotes Jesus, so the whole verse is there. Paul is speaking at first. In everything I did, I showed you, by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, actually, the miraculous release of the kingdom of God is that God wants to teach us to be givers, not takers. To be able to actually give away of ourselves or our resources and not to just be driven by selfishness and self-interest. These are very deep roots in the human psyche, in the human character. Materialism, discontent and a selfishness. And if they're given into, they drive us to want other people's persons, property and possessions, which is what the Ten Commandments touches. You may not want somebody's donkey, but you might want their Jaguar or their Porsche or something. It's, it, so other people's persons, property and possessions are what this is about. Now, although we've got to tussle with this, all of us, because although God says in his ten statements, and there are only ten clear statements about what, how we should live, God says don't covet. Although God says that, our culture is almost obsessed with coveting. We live in an atmosphere which is fueled by coveting. Coveting is not considered in modern Britain a bad thing at all. In fact, it is probably considered an engine for the economy. It's probably considered the only way we can keep our economy going. We live in an age called consumerist age. Consumerism, advertising, easy credit. And the whole of that is essentially focused around a form of coveting. Take the waiting out of wanting. I've actually seen that advert. I think it's a bit of an old one. I don't think it's around these days, but it was around perhaps 15 years ago. Take the waiting out of wanting advertising credit. Now, that is essentially just building on coveting. And actually, particularly in uh, an open sort of way, really, in the 80s, and then afterwards, it became, and it still is, quite okay to say, well, I just need things. I want things. It's fine just to get as much as you want. And go for it. And we, we fuel coveting. In fact, the whole of our sort of advertising industry, much of our media is devoted to making you acutely aware of things you haven't got, make you want them, and even begin to think you need them. I mean, that's how our economy works. To take your wants and make you think they're needs and feel you've got to have them. Now, that's essentially working on coveting, covetousness. Another thing that I've noticed recently, I know this is a little diversion, but I feel it's quite relevant, because it was on the news last night. We have now a culture which is full of gambling. The, the government has just really relaxed quite a few of the gambling laws. We've been doing that, though, for 20 or 30 years. I mean, probably the National Lottery was a major start on that, which was back in the 1990, wasn't it? I can't remember now. And even having a national lottery was quite a significant thing. And then we've relaxed gambling. Now the government are actually quite keen to have um, super casinos to regenerate so-called run-down areas. 
And now uh, there's laws relaxing things. Yes, they do say that they're trying to restrict certain things, but there's a lot of relaxation in the laws as well, allowing gambling to be advertised. You may have seen it on the television news last night. We're told 64%, 64% of our nation gamble. So that's two out of every three people gamble in some form. Certainly two out of every three buy the national lottery. And, and actually the whole thing needs serious looking at. This is a cultural change in our nation. And it's another result of godlessness. One of the reasons our nation had quite a tight attitude to gambling, why, for example, betting shops were, were blacked out so as not to attract the vulnerable and young, why licensing was very tight, is because it isn't a good thing. Gambling is quite destructive. It, it's it built really on coveting. I mean, it provokes essentially and legitimizes the obsession with gaining something with no effort. To try and gain vast wealth by chance without any work. And therefore, it sort of provokes and feeds on a form of greed. It exploits gullibility. Two out of every three people do the national lottery, but statistically, your chances of winning the jackpot are lower. Less, you have less chance of winning the jackpot than of being killed on your way to buying a ticket. Statistically, you're more likely to be killed by a road accident or, a, I don't know, anything. You're more likely to die going to buy the ticket than you are to get the jackpot. So it, it, it's actually exploiting gullibility. And of course, it discourages good stewardship of money, saving, which is good for family economies and good for the national economy as well. Good stewardship. It pressurises the vulnerable people. Gambling can be a terrible addiction. Already we're hearing that it's growing enormously. As a pastor, I have had dealings with people addicted to gambling. I've seen families ruined, and I'm not talking about obvious people, people doing a fairly high professional job, high-tech job, uh, and uh, you know, looking like okay when you met them in the street. And actually, the guy tried to kill himself. And first I got heard about it was I was called to the uh, intensive care unit because of his drug overdose where he tried to kill himself, a man with two children. And it was all about gambling. In the end, when we got into the problem, just deeply in debt and gambling, it's actually very dangerous for vulnerable, which is why people have, in the past, when there's been a Christian ethos in the nation, generally it's been restricted and people have been protected from it. I personally, I must be careful not to go off on one here, personally I think the lottery is a classic example of taking from the poor to give to the rich. I mean... I saw the particular fever for it when I was in Hastings when it first started. And it is undoubtedly true that it does seduce particularly those who are on a poor income and who have little hope of uh, good reward. And, and it's just a little pleasure in their life and all sorts of explanations. But, but actually, the lottery companies make vast profits, vast profits. The whole stuff about being charitable is, I think, a con, really. I mean, sure, there's a bit of charity. But a lot of the charitable things are not classic charities. They're not the poor and the needy. They might be a, an opera house or a sports complex or something like that. As you know, the Olympics are probably going to be funded a lot from the lottery. And you think, well, isn't that stuff the government should be doing anyway? Shouldn't that come from taxation? And it's certainly an opera house. If I think of the people I knew who had problems with almost being addicted to the lottery in my old situation, uh, in the city where I was, the town where I was, they were not the sort of people who were going to opera house. I can assure you of that. And so actually, it is actually, I think, quite a pernicious way of feeding on people's coveting and greed. It's getting money that maybe should come from other sources 
And uh, you can even find statistics that charities have suffered as a result. So there's something about this whole gambling thing in our nation, which is part of this covetousness that's been encouraged. Okay, maybe I am going on. Let's go on to the second and last question. So what is this commandment doing there? What are we doing? Well, I think it's doing the thing that I'm talking about. It's showing us that we all, as a, as a people, have a problem with this sin of coveting. Although this commandment is dealing with something less tangible than the other ones, actually what it is dealing with is the root of most of the things that happen in the other, certainly community, sins in the Ten Commandments. Lying, stealing, adultery, often are rooted into covetousness, wanting something that's not yours. And God is saying to us that sin is a lot more than just what you do on the outside. This Tenth Commandment reminds us and brings home the reality, it's the inside, it's in the mind, it's in the heart that sin starts. And God is not concerned merely with the fruit. He wants to deal with the root. Now, all the commandments I've been saying since the beginning have this spirit level aversion. If you were here last week, I spent most of the time hanging on to a spirit level. Some people said, you never let go of that thing. And and you, you remember I was using the spirit level in the family service for illustrating that commandments show what's wrong with us, whether we're not straight or level. And they do have that major purpose. And this one does it more clearly almost than any. It highlights that we have a problem. Suddenly, we realise it is very hard to live as God meant us to live. The Ten Commandments might be the Maker's instructions, but we can't live by them. Now, the first two commandments do that a bit, quite a lot really, as they look, point us to God. But in a way, we could go through the rest and begin to feel quite confident. Well, I don't commit adultery, I didn't steal, I don't murder anyone. We could be like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. And he said, I've, com- I've kept all the commandments since my youth. And, and Jesus loved him because he wasn't just arrogant, he really felt he had. It's interesting what Jesus said to him. He said to him, go and sell what you've got and give it to the poor. Now, what was Jesus doing? He wasn't saying you'll earn salvation. He was actually reminding him, I think, of commandment 10. He was reminding him, you've said, oh, I've never never murdered anyone, I've not committed adultery, I've honoured my parents and and kept the Sabbath. And Jesus said, uh, if you like, in his own gentle but firm and and confrontational way, what about coveting? (laughs) What about what's important to your life? And it said he went away very sad. And you know, Paul felt that this, the Apostle Paul felt that this commandment was possibly the one that really got to him. We don't know if this is um, autobiographical or not, but when you read Romans 7, Paul talks about a man who was trying to keep the law and just couldn't and realised that it was showing his sin. And I've just got a verse or two of it. Romans 7, verses 7 to 8. And he uses this command as an example. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Now, I would like to leave that up for a moment. That's quite an important bit of scriptural biblical understanding in those verses. What is the purpose of the Ten Commandments? 
Well, actually, although they do lay out how we should live, one of their biggest purposes is to show that we are miles short of living how we should. If we were living how God made us to live, if we were not sinners, the Ten Commandments would not be a challenge. Coveting would not be a problem. But when we read it, we think, what's this? I can't do this. Certainly about some of them and this one as well. And it's highlighting that we have a problem. As later in Romans 7, Paul says, we are slaves sold to sin. Sold as slaves to sin. The Ten Commandments show that we are not capable of living a righteous, holy life of our own accord. There's nothing wrong with the law. But the law, the Bible says, is weak, not because of the law, but because of us. The law comes and says, this is how a normal, healthy human being should live. Ten Commandments, spirit level. And we come and say, don't be ridiculous. How can you not covet And that highlights the problem. And actually it sort of, as this verse says, it sort of provokes the problem. Because one of the effects of law is to actually provoke sin. Have you not ever experienced, I have, going past saying, I'm being told not to do it, and feeling that irritating, you know, don't walk on the grass. You think, why not? And I I have been guilty of doing it. Why not? It's grass, it's a park. Don't touch. Why not? I wasn't even thinking of touching it. Now I'm going to touch it. You know, switch off the light. Why? I pay for the electricity. I'm going to leave the light on. <laughs> you know, and so actually, the law not only tells us what's wrong, but it often provokes the very thing. It shows us it really is a problem. It's not like there's a few little things we do wrong. There is something in here that's going wrong, that's got almost a life of its own, as he says. All sorts of covetous desires. And I begin to think, why not covet? Don't be ridiculous. That's how you live. You begin not only to not do it, you begin to almost react against it. Think, that's stupid, Lord. God must be stupid, not coveting. What's that? That's unreal, unrealistic. And actually, you begin to even say, well, I'm going to live a life of coveting. And it provokes something in you, almost a turmoil. And it seems like sin comes alive. Now, the sin is there. He's only speaking, I would say, metaphorically. But the law almost provokes it. Now that is what all of the Ten Commandments do, and it's certainly what this one does. But the chapter 7, and I haven't got this on the overhead, because we're going to get back to that in a minute. Chapter 7 goes on to say in verse 24, chapter 7 of Romans, that Paul ended up, and it's probably a bit autobiographical, as I said, ended up saying, what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? If you want to be a Christian, if you want to be a decent Christian, you have got to understand Romans 7 verse 24. If you've never felt, what a wretched person I am, how on earth can I change, who will rescue me from this body of death? If you've never felt that, I am not surprised you have a problem being a Christian or living as a Christian. Because you think that Christianity is about a polishing on the outside or meeting some of your needs, it will meet your needs. But fundamentally, it is not about that. It is about dealing with that inner root of sin that that is so prevalent. In my flesh dwells no good thing, says Paul. And he's right. In my flesh dwells no good thing. Even when I do a good thing, I know I do it without a bad motive sometimes. Yeah, I do a few good things. They're often tainted. 
You know, I, I do. I'm selfish. I, 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 and you think, what's the matter with me? God help me. Which is where Paul gets to. Wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And verse 25, he tells you the answer. Hallelujah. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the law is a schoolmaster, the Bible says, to drive us to Christ. And this one, number 10, really does the job. Because it says, this is your problem. Even your very thoughts are are, are wonky. You're coveting. You're all the time wanting things that aren't yours. You're discontent. You're driven by a materialistic outlook. You need an answer which is more radical than trying to fulfil a few laws. The Gospel is not about law. Although I've preached on the Ten Commandments, I trust I've made that clear. It's not going to be, oh, this is a great idea. Here's Ten Commandments. Let's all try and keep them. The Ten Commandments cannot be kept because you're the problem and I'm the problem. They're weak and useless because we're weak and useless. We can't do it. We have to have a different answer. I need a supernatural cure. All the Ten Commandments can do is be like a diagnosis, a doctor's diagnosis of a sickness, the sickness of sin. And it's a serious sickness and it's killing me. But actually, there is a cure. And the cure isn't in the law, the cure is in Jesus Christ. So would you turn to me as we come towards the end, to Romans 8. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, if you've got a Bible. This isn't on the screen, just the reference is on the screen. Romans 8, because this is follows from Romans 7, where Paul's saying, coveting arose in me, what a wretched man I am. I'd like to try and explain this to you just for a few moments as we finish, because it's so important. Romans 8, verses 1 to 4, will have something of the wonderful, wonderful hope of the Gospel and something of how this all works together, this business of you know, trying to fulfil the law and failing to. So let's read it and let me comment as I read it. Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm going to stop and say something there. Condemnation here is about law condemnation and we should all taste this. It's the wretched man that I am verse. It's knowing that I am a failure in myself. I am a sinner. I am rightly branded unholy. (laughs) Now, that condemnation is healthy if it drives you to Jesus. It's not healthy if that's all you experience and it's round and round and round, a lifetime of condemnation. Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you put faith in Jesus Christ and come into Christ Jesus, you have the answer to the whole problem of your law-breaking and its subsequent condemnation. Why? Well, let's explain. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. We'll come back to that one in a moment. For what the law was powerless to do, you see, the law couldn't do it, in that it was weakened by what? By my nature, my flesh, your flesh. What the law couldn't do, God did, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. This is the gospel. God has done something to completely remove my guilt and my condemnation. His own son, Jesus Christ, came as a man and became a sin offering. He died on the cross for my law-breaking, for my coveting, for my adultery, for my stealing, for my 
lust, for my godlessness, for my idolatry. Jesus died for it. He became a sin offering for me. And he, wonderful, he fulfilled the law. The law said you should die, he died. The law has been fulfilled for John Groves. John Groves' sins have been paid for, not by John Groves, but by Jesus Christ. And that is wonderful. This is the two big arms of the gospel. Jesus frees us from the guilt of sin. That's what I'm talking about at the moment. He frees us from the condemnation and guilt. But there is another arm. It's wonderful. Let's read on. And so he he condemned sin in sinful man. Verse 4. In order that the righteous requirements of the law... This is astronomical. It's not awesome, it's astronomical. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, the flesh, but live according to the spirit. This is the other arm of the gospel. Not just cleansed from the guilt of sin, cleansed from its power. You don't have to cover all your life. Actually, God was never interested in external law-keeping. That's what coveting the Tenth Commandment is about. He's interested in the inside. And in the Gospel, he gets inside. Having got the sin judgment dealt with, he comes in to renew you, to to bring you birth. His Spirit comes into you. You are born again of the Holy Spirit. And the goal is this that the righteous requirements of the law might be met in you, fully met in you, that you actually might live as a righteous person. You might live a life pleasing to God. You who stole might become a giver. You who coveted will become a person who's generous and self-sacrificing. How? Because Jesus not only cleanses your sin away, he changes your heart. And you now live by the Spirit, not by the law. You're not under the law You live in the Spirit. And therefore, the Ten Commandments have one final amazing task. They hint at, or point to, the life in the Spirit. It will be a life where you don't commit adultery. It will be a life where you do give rather than take. It will be a life where you honour God. Where you honour your parents. Because you're living a Christ-like life. The Spirit of God is changing you from the inside out. So what we do is we don't keep looking at a list of laws. We keep looking at a person, Jesus Christ. That's what you've got to keep doing. You've got to keep looking to Jesus. You've got to keep filled with the Spirit and walking in the Spirit. Because we no longer live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And the next verse tells us, if we live like that, we set our mind on the things of the Spirit. So what happens now, as a Christian, is the law issue is dealt with. We've fulfilled the law. The law said death. Death has been meted out, meted out to Jesus. And now in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. I come as a child of God. I come into the arms of a loving father. And now he wants me to live as his child. He says, I want you to teach you to walk in the spirit. You're not going to end up living a life driven by covetousness. You're going to live a life driven by the pleasures of God. By the desire for God. That's healthy desire. Desire isn't wrong. It's what you desire. If you desire someone else's wife, that's wrong. If I desire my own wife, which I do, that's right. It's not that I'm supposed to become some dead stone not desiring any woman at all. I've got one to desire. Here she is. Bless her. 
And it's the same in other ways. What is your desire? It's, there's something. God says, you can almost, if you like, be coveting me. Be coveting my things. Say, Lord, I want more of you. I want more of your spirit. I want, I want to taste your delights. So it, the desire is turned the right way. Coveting, is it the wrong way? What have other people got? What's God got for me? God, more of you. More of you. So that's how we're changed. And now we walk in the spirit and we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Not because there's a commandment list and we're scared of it, but because we've been set free, dealt with, our sin dealt with, and we are now free to walk in the spirit and please God. We can now give our body as servants to him, our members as servants to him. It's a glorious gospel, isn't it? It's a great thing to rejoice in. And I want us to do that. I'm, I'm, I think the children will come back, but I can't not. I mean, we did loads of important information. We can't not thank Jesus and worship together at the end of the Ten Commandments. And, and what better way than some praise and worship around the bread and wine? If the children come back from the park, they can join us. But really, I want us to rejoice in the gospel for a, for a last quarter of an hour, ten minutes. And what like the musicians are, I want you all to be thankful for what Jesus has done for you. But I want you also to sort of rededicate yourself to walk in the Spirit. To say, Lord, out of all this stuff that John's talking about, there is a sort of challenge, isn't there? We live in a covetous age, and yet we're to live as stars shining in a dark night. We're to live differently. Where people were uh, greedily trying to get everything and say, my whole life consists of my possessions, we say, our whole life consists of Jesus Christ. Jesus is my life. That's where it starts and that's where it ends. And really, my possessions are very minor compared to that. Now, I'm, I'm a flesh and blood like you. I know there's a battleground, but we don't have to lose the battle. We can win it. We can win it. I mean, I, I feel that God can change your heart. You know, it is my deep conviction that you do not have to be trapped in your sin. You don't have to say, well, I've always been like that. I'm going to be like that whether it's lust or coveting or greed or whatever or some other thing, or even fear, certain fears. Jesus is the answer to it. Now, the answer can't come by just me telling you. You have to stretch out to him and say, Jesus, I confess my sin. That's where we start. You are faithful and just to forgive me my greed or my coveting, because that's what we're talking about today, whatever it is. But having got that wonderful forgiveness, which is available for all of us, you then say, Lord, I want to follow you. You are my Lord. Change me. I want to live differently. And you can. That's what the gospel's about. If you're not a Christian this morning, come and see us afterwards. You won't be appropriate for you to take the bread and wine in the next ten minutes when we're worshipping. But what I want you to do is to not just leave here and forget it. I want you to come and talk to, uh, to me or maybe to... Uh, one of the others of us at the front here, it could be myself, you probably recognise me, and tell me, and I want to teach you how to be a Christian. It will simply be to lead you to Jesus, really. Because don't go away and ignore this. Just think about it. But majority of us here probably are Christians. If you come from another church, but you love Jesus, of course you're welcome to take the bread and wine. And I want us to use it at the end of today, and also at the end of this little mini-series on the law of Ten Commandments, to use it as a vehicle for thanksgiving, but also for rededication. Lord, we are setting our sights. We don't want to live 
half-baked Christian lives. I want to live a life where I fulfil the righteousness that God was after in the law and never got. It can begin to be real and true in my life as I walk in the Spirit and follow Jesus. It all hinges on my relationship with him. It's a person you relate to, not a set of laws. And we need to start and finish with that point.